Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. An interview with Andy Sharp, author of the English Heretic Collection, Ritual Histories and Magical Geography. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this episode of Horror Vanguard. I am uh, your co-ghost, Ash, joined, as always, by the Licrit Guy, a.k.a. John. How's it going, John the Licrit Guy? <laughs> uh, it's still weird, isn't it? It's still, that's, that's still, it still feels weird when you would... I'm good. I'm very excited about today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> and we are joined, we are joined by uh, an author of a brand new book, uh, Andy Sharp. How's it going? Good. Good, strange, strange time in the UK. Yeah, it's gone uh, back to kind of lockdown in the last few weeks. So it's, um, but good on personal level. Yeah, so good. The books come out this week. This is this is such a strange time to be having a like a good personal success, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to be guarded, haven't you? Sort of like about how much you want to, you know, you don't want to overdo it, do you? You know. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know, unless you're Trump, he kind of turns everything, <laughs> turns everything into a victory, doesn't he? he turned Just into, dancing around the country, yeah. yeah COVID <laughs> well, I suppose we'd all be dancing around our respective countries if we had access to, like, an industrial supply of horse steroids or something, so. Yeah, yeah. What, what, whatever whatever dark blood ritual has been done to keep, <laughs> to keep his meat vessel animated with the dark spirits has clearly been a success. Yeah, I kind of, uh, I, I, I said to my partner, my wife, um, that when he went into hospital, he's going to come out, it's going to be like Joe, Jim Jones, he's going to come out and he's going to have superpowers, and he did. You know, <laughs> you know. Jim Jones used to do that, he, was, he pretended to be shot, didn't he, at one of these events, and then miraculously got up. Um, so, yeah, and, and then an actual fact, someone, someone sent me an article that was written two, about three years ago by... Jim Jones' son called Stephen Jones, who survived Jonestown, and he was saying Trump is like his dad. And this mm. was two or three years ago. So it's quite interesting. He's, he's kind of like a conjurer in a weird way, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yes. no, no. He, he he very much has that cultic uh, yeah. uh, personal appeal, right? Like that's very much part of his character. Like he was, he was saying that um, – his DNA resisted the coronavirus. It's <laughs> just the most ludicrous comical yeah, stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah, but it's, got, it's got it's got that kind of uh, a Jonestown kind of pizzazz to it. Definitely, definitely, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> but any but anyway, uh, as a as a, a hard swerve into a different conversation, uh, your your brand new book uh, just recently came out. Um, would you uh, would you tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, so this book is an anthology of uh, 15 years worth of uh, research, writing and music publication. So I, I started a project called English Heretic in about 2003. And English Heretic was a, is a kind of subversion of um, a government quango, history quango that we've got in the UK called English Heritage that preserves ruins and castles and things like that. And it's very... Um, it's very commercial and it's, uh, you know, it's a this very sanitized version of history. And I just sort of through various different experiments and uh, rationales came to this idea of doing a subversion of it. And English Heretic 
was a subversion and I kind of did it as a sort of dual format where I'd be have a magazine and a book and that's kind of a nod to magazines like The Unexplained in the 70s and that's gone through 15 years you know I had some aims for it at the beginning and and it's, it sort of became a more metafictional device um, and yeah I was asked by Tarot to do uh, an anthology about um, a year and a half ago so it's collected writings and also new writings and reworked stuff so it's a narrative history taking out all the musical sides and creating this kind of new structure just from the, the writing so um, and a lot of it's focused on so it's focused on our culture uh, counterculture film and reality fortiana um that's pretty much the, the project oh uh, yeah I, I gotta say i really really enjoy this book this is the kind of book that i am i definitely see myself just just frequently revisiting and pouring over and digging into random sections of there's just there's so much in here and i love it good great thanks that's really, that's really good to hear there's a lot of, yeah so, that's a, I, I love I love the pun too. I love the English heritage heretic pun. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a bit of a winner, isn't it? <laughs> mm -hmm. a, a good a good pun is a refined craft, and you absolutely yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And it absolutely. also gives a lot of mileage to it. Yeah, so let's get it that right. <laughs> yeah, so. <laughs> you usually get one right in your career, don't you? <laughs> good band name or something like that. There's um there's a great quote in the forward. Uh, to the book that I just wanted to, to to share and maybe we can use that as a kind of starting point for thinking about the the method of of English of heretic of this kind of subversion of of um of history so the quote is that most esoteric of materialist philosophers Walter Benjamin berated those who recount history like the beads of a rosary as if events are simply given for the retelling and not cast in the molds of the masters Redeeming a past buried under the weight of historical myth, the materialist must, according to Benjamin, grasp a constellation which his own era has formed with a definite earlier one, thereby interrupting the empty flow of linear time, the ritual summation of positivistic data. Uh, which I think is great. Uh, I think is a great way of describing what the book is trying to do. But maybe you could talk a little bit about what you think of as your kind of method of work, as it were. Okay, yeah, so it was quite uh, it was quite experimental. At the, the beginning, there were like a number of different threads to it. Um, I was interested in the idea of magazines like The Unexplained and Man, Myth and Magic. They offered like an interface to what I call like a dangerous archetypal reality. And that comes from Antonin Artau where in Theatre in the Double, where he was kind of saying he wanted, you know, almost like an imaginary alive uh, um, experience. And I took that a lot from kind of childhood play, my memory of childhood play, and the way that you would automatically creatively visualise when you're playing your games and whatever it would be like Doctor Who or Star Wars and or Star Trek or whatever. And you could, I could remember being out in the garden and pointedly I can remember the experience of the garden not being the garden, it being this... this this place that is a bit like a, um, what you'd you'd experience in creative visualization or whatever, you know, astral projection. And children do that automatically until a certain age when they suddenly realize that it's fantasy, not reality. 
And I wanted the project to be able to kind of explore that, but use place very specifically uh, and use like kind of tangible historical realms and fictions, you know, and, and things like that. But then use that as a point to to access this kind of waking dream reality. So that was that's the method kind of like uh, active imagination, but um, active imagination applied to reality in itself so yeah you know a, a definite conjuration with reality so you get that in the works of people like castaneda as well and um so that was that was very much the the method in other words you're using this using reality and and, and these historical places and, and and film locations particularly as a place where you can move between a fictional rendering of place and history and uh, and a factual one and make it quite fluid so that was a method um and as i said i think i said in the beginning of the, the in in the first chapter i was kind of interested in in uh, uh neoplatonic magic and the way that um you know they would offer advice agrippa would offer advice if you want to like conjure up saturn then you go to places where there's been an execution or something like that and it kind of struck me that um kind of Again, organically, heuristically as well, that that actually the places that have these impressions on you often come from films. So, uh, for instance, up in up in Cambridge, there's 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 a, one of the remaining gibbets, uh, or it's been like a, an iteration of the gibbet. But it's outside of McDonald's, so you've got this kind of thing where you've got these weird. Two, and that's quite funny in itself, you know, and. Uh, you know, but there's this layer of concrete over kind of a lot of the places where historically that, you know, there's been hangings and things like that. You go into London and, the, you know, like it's now concretized. But by complete, well, not complete accidents. I, you know, I was, it, the book goes into great detail. In the first chapter, I was looking at um, uh, Which Find a General by um, uh, Michael Reeves, his final film. And a lot of that was filmed on location in Suffolk where I was living. And I've lived lived for many years, and so I, I've revisited some of the locations. and the, the The opening scene is very powerful, and it's set in this village called Kersey, in um, on the Suffolk Essex border. And it's a it's still, you know, because all these buildings are listed. The Tudor buildings are half timbered Tudor buildings. They're thirteenth, fourteenth century. So it's it looks it looks exactly like it did in 1968 when the film was made, but it mm. also looks like, it, you know, the, the fictional version of history as well. So, so the opening scene of which find a general, um, the, uh, the, the old crone is dragged up this paddock, dragged up this alleyway between these uh, Tudor bills and then dragged up this paddock and then hung on the hill. When I visited it, this, this place, the, the, the scar of this fictional, hanging was still there from 1968 so they dug a pit so the you know that there would there would be some drop when she she was hanged and there's makeshift gibbet and that was still there you know and that was the kind of reality this is this was the the, the definite point where i realized there's something to play here with the fictionalized version of what agrippa was talking about but by, by accessing these you know these places of saturn and they dug a hole there and it was still there so it, it uh, you know from a historical archaeological point of view that event did happen in some realm so that was the kind of that's the kind of 
riff I played with, really. Yeah, I find that I find this to be really interesting because there is this like powerful overlap between like historic and filmic realities, especially in the locations that they choose to to recreate their events, right? And like, I, I think your your anecdote about the McDonald's is really interesting because I was in um, York not too long ago, and I remember saying there there was I forget what the building was, but there was some building and it has this plaque in front of it saying that it's like. It was it was erected in the early 1400s and it's stood the test of time and it's been now it's the site of all these locations and it immediately abuts a brand new McDonald's. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that is like powerful in itself. I don't think you can get rid of the palimpsest. You know, it just adds mm-hmm. layers to it. Adds layers of irony and absurdity and and also pointedness. You know, if you think about um, think about the Chapman brothers. That that painting that 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 sculpture they did with uh, tiny soldiers and they had like Ronald yeah. McDonald crucified and stuff like that. So, you know, it's a good example of them playing with that kind of uh, kind of you know magnification of horror and history and and the modern and things like that. And I mean, arguably, that's one of the that's this this desire to try to to try to erase the uh, the constant overwriting. Uh, of history is absolutely kind of integral to, to to capitalist processes, especially in the context of of cities. I thought that the term you used was concretization, which is a really interesting way of putting it, because you're talking about making something real, but at the same time, literally obscuring something with concrete, uh, and just, yeah. which which imposes a kind of uniformity and homogeneity. I mean, and we've said on the show before, you know, uh, capitalism is irreducibly haunted. And that's in, in, in a very real sense, right? Um, if you walk through the Northern Quarter, which is the kind of historic part of Manchester, you'll see these kind of um, like holes which have been punched in streets where like old houses have just been kind of ripped out so that they could build this new uh, development of flats, for example. And you're right, there is something deeply uh, uncanny and you you kind of see the slippage, right? You see... It's like you have you get to see the kind of sub time as substrata. You see the various layers that have been built up over centuries in some cases. Definitely, definitely. But you also kind of see it's quite interesting. It becomes quite psychoanalytic in a weird way because, like, repression. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, capitalism yeah. is trying to repress this stuff. But the more it puts on a layer of absurdity, the more weird it is, like the McDonald's on the gibbet, you know, because like, like the McDonald's sign looks as though you could hang someone from it. You do you know what I mean? <laughs> so you kind of, you know what I mean? It, it creates its own absurdities that you can then, like, dismantle. And I've tried to do that quite a bit with in a purely kind of, you know, just looking at the way that the image doubles and and reappears and, you know, relates to the past as well when we try and do these things like, uh, you know, uh, get rid of the past entirely. And that's a very, in, in a way, that's a very Freudian thing, you know. In a very, oh, yeah. You can look at in an analytic way, yeah, yeah. You know, in a good, you know, in a fun way, in a way. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, Given that you've given that you've already mentioned it, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, Witchfinder General, um, and and it'd be I'd really like to kind of know a bit more about your thoughts on sort of that '60s folk revival, the the kind of folk horror triptych. Obviously, is Witchfinder General, uh, Blood on Satan's Claw, and and the Wicker Man, uh, and what you yeah what you're kind of reading of of folk horror in the late '60s is. 
and what you think of the kind of folk horror revival that's been happening especially in british horror fiction in in terms of bo- books novels and and films over the past kind of decade or so yeah i mean i'm, I'm quite amazed by it really because i mean i um i did the Witchfinder general project and and blood and satan claw was going to be the follow-up to that and i did I, I did stuff on it but then deviate in other ways um but i i I'd done the original investigation or I did both projects in about 2004 and there wasn't really anybody doing it um, at that time in a, in a particular way. I mean, Wicker Man was, had been revisited and, but Blood and Satan's Claw hadn't. Um, and um, my, my interest really in, in Witchfinder General wasn't so much the folk horror point of view, but it was this, this kind of weird curse that I found associated with it. I mean, the witch burning scene, in um which final general was filmed in lavenham and um i found i got this book about michael reeves and so there are a whole bunch of sort of synchronicities around that but the bit in the book that struck me was that they did this really horrific witch witch burning scene and then all the locals said they could hear clanging and and stuff like that and then i found out subsequently um you know reeves obviously michael reeves obviously um died a year later, got very depressed and sort of took an accidental uh, sleeping pill overdose and died. Um, and then Sharon Tate's last film was filmed in uh, Lavenham and then she was murdered by Manson and then John Lennon and Yoko Ono filmed there and he was assassinated and Pasolini, Pierre Paolo Pasolini filmed Canterbury Tales there and he was murdered. Yeah. So I just got this kind of curse based on that scene. So I really, I wasn't really looking at the folk horror aspect of it. I, it was the personal intrusion and this kind of like Fortean sort of investigation that I could do that I kind of half believe and half, you know, like it's something that I found and it's it was quite resonant. So that was my take on it, really, rather than from a, a folk horror point of view. Um, uh, but there was in a, this kind of riff that I, I followed, sort of looking at um, looking at um, Blood and Satan's Claw from a similar perspective, because there was this overlay in that film, the 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 the. the uh, the writer of the script, a guy called Robert Wynne Simmons, he wrote it when he was at college and he, he deliberately overlaid the case of Mary Bell, who was a child who murdered two little boys around in 1968 in Newcastle. So immediately, again, I was I was kind of looking at this and he used that as the kind of underpinning for the for for the blood on satan's claw so i was again it was this overlay of the modern you know this kind of like very haunted murder in in newcastle and i kind of played played it as far as i could imagining that you know maybe you know that, that there was this this kind of relationship between the angel blake and mary bell and things like that so it was very speculative and very kind of paranoid really um but yeah uh, the whole kind of folk horror thing in this country took off really about 2008 2009 after um guys from league of gentlemen which is a mm-hmm. i don't know if it's over in america league, league of gentlemen but i mean it's it was a, it's a fantastic series incredibly funny incredibly well written very dark in very dark hot, uh, horror comedy then they they kind of look, look back on their influences and um uh you know looked at uh, blood and saints claw because it's you know it's, it's it's you know it's it was made on a budget and they lo- lost 
the budget on it and then they kind of they had bits of it left and it, it was originally going to be a, a portmanteau uh but they ran out of budget so they cobbled this port three different stories into one so it it kind of doesn't make sense but there's very powerful scenes in it you know and this the kind of setting in the, of the, the the church and and stuff is incredibly powerful and i think the whole kind of league of gentlemen guys kicked it off into the bigger arena so it was really so it fed it fed into kind of a very british notion of things being kind of funny but dark i think in a lot of ways and that was the original impetus but i think the whole folk horror revival has gone on a completely you know it's it's found out quite extraordinary you know people doing phds on it and things like that and i can't quite you know to be honest i can't quite work out how that has happened other than um uh you know i don't really buy into the fact that it's somehow even though I've been, you looked at it on Blood and Satan's Claw, there's somehow it's something to do with, you know, reflecting the time. I don't think those films were really, really that kind of, um, you know, they weren't that considered really, you know, they weren't that metaphorical when they were made, you know, <laughs> make a bit of money and like be a bit sleazy and stuff like that, you know. You know people yeah, like totally. Content, they, were, they, they weren't like these kind of considered sort of, you know, they weren't like kind of... Um, hauntologists or something like that you know, <laughs> you know I mean? they were, yeah, so they weren't but it's been adopted by that and i think partly it's been adopted because it you know they weren't knowing films they were there to be discovered and they were weird and they were and they were often shown late at night you know in a particular mm-hmm. you know uh, they'd be just chucked on at 11 o'clock on a friday night or something like that and i think so you would a lot of it comes from people having watched those films you know uh, when they were younger, the whole horror season. I think that is so it is like a a kind of nostalgic memory, but a nostalgic memory of something that's quite creepy. It's not a comfortable memory, you know, it's kind of, oh God, I saw that when I was a child. Oh, you know, and that was quite you know, they are, you know, Blood and Saints Claws pretty heavy really in places, you know. Um so I think that's why it's taken off because there's a certain again, is a certain kind of taboo we shouldn't have been watching that kind of element to the childhood and things like that so um uh and a whole bunch of other things have come out you know the play for today episodes like robin redbreast um which was a precursor to um wicker man so so on top of those three i think what how folk horror has really taken off is it's enabled people to go you know archaeologically crate digging and like find yeah you know these these other interesting obscure things so it's this kind of hunt you know for 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 these hidden gems you know that you know happens in in lots of different it happens in music uh and i think i can see a different parallel between the kind of folk horror revival and various other things you know like obscure library music and things like that even though they're not necessarily the same thing it's the same crate digging for obscurity and and a sort of dark nostalgia and there's a there's a hidden quality to all of this too, right? Like, there, there there's something in folk horror, especially like you know, like like take Witchfinder General. It's set in like 1645. It takes place in like you know, like Suffolk and a couple other places. And these places still exist today, but they don't at the same time, right? Like they don't exist because it's not the 1600s anymore, and and so much of the world has changed. And so you have this like 
this this uh, however unintentionally you have like the perfect depiction of hauntology in a movie being filmed in the 70s set in the 1600s being resurrected in the 2010s as a as a critical piece of scholarly work yeah yeah I, but i think the other thing is you touched on it there there's this kind of um it feeds back into a kind a kind of it's a way of accessing a paganism as well. I think you know. Mm, yeah. It's again, you know, like our, our, you know, like um, uh, um, Dean mentions it in the Ford. You know, we got interested in things like the occult not because you know, from the academic point of view, because it was kind of quite scuzzy and you know glamorous. Yeah. And <laughs> it was. Just, I can't remember. He says it's skulls and stuff, and I think that's a valid reason for getting interested in, in kind of like any religion you know you know the, the kind of glamour you know this is you know the the, the the connection between glamour and and magic and things like that and these are very good entry points and i think people genuinely become interested in paganism and and, and uh and uh, you know and and wicca and things like that from these entry points and i think that's a completely valid great thing to happen it's not from this dry point of view it's from the from the thing that hooks you in the first place you know, initiation, fear, ritual, and things like that, and I very mm. much play on that. I very much don't want to dismiss that. There's a, you know, a, a sort of pulp magic and and a democracy to myth and democracy to way you get interested in occultism and paganism and whatever. And I, I think these films are very good for that. You know, and uh, I know it kind of bit splits people's opinion, but I really enjoyed a Midsummer. You know, I thought it was great. You know, I thought it was a really good film. I thought it was one of the best um, uh, new breed of uh, folk horror, you know, it was pretty cool, you know, and I don't, you know, I didn't really dig Hereditary that much, but I thought Midsommar was great. I had an amazing soundtrack as well. Um, and that was kind of scary and, and fun and over the top and, you know, um, so there's good stuff being made, I think, on the back of it and great film Borderlands, brilliant. Mm. mr james mackintyre terrifying film as well you know found footage film so there's a good new breed of films coming out, out of it as well i do i do totally understand what you mean though when you say that like i think of this in the context of like horror studies and i think yeah i i didn't i didn't i didn't get into watching horror movies because i was like ah there's some super interesting discourse happening here. <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. yeah yeah i, I got into it because horror movies are fucking cool <laughs> yeah and there were also something like it was there was a certain cachet of how liberal and cool your parents are if they allowed you to stay up and watch race with the devil see my parents let me do that <laughs> and, and my colleagues my school friends at school weren't so i could go back on monday and tell them all about race with the devil and you're like like you know you're the man who watched race with the devil <laughs> you know dreadful films like that you know and you, and you could tell horror stories and and uh, yeah that sort of thing so you became this kind of like the, the storyteller of like what you seen on Saturday because your mum and dad didn't really care you watched so you know <laughs> all that sort of stuff was very you know it's kind of <laughs> yeah. yeah there's uh, definitely there's definitely a cultural currency to, yeah, to yeah. being spooky in general <laughs> yeah if you got see alien before you know so you, you're somehow like more I don't know you're like more manly or something like that because you see this sort of again but like this is not that dissimilar from you know, initiation rites, you know, 
you know, you know, fear as a as a part of joining a cult or whatever, you know. And, and you know, I think you know, um, I, I'm still very interested in why, what is what is like a, um, you know, they, whatever the French the French terms resource, you know, what is it in us that's that, that this stuff should have been factored out if it was really bad for us, you know what I mean? Nightmares yeah. and stuff like that. Um, why, you know, what there's a shamanic element to to fear and uh, going with it and experiencing it. Um, you know, I think that's that's part of you know part of the general appeal, and that it's uh, you know why horror is more than just you know. It's more than just a genre. It is a you know there's a there's a visceral quality to it if it get if it's done right. Uh, as we have said repeatedly on this show, horror wants to do things to your body, uh, and uh, some of those things you will be into. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there, yeah. There, there, is, there is this kind of like violent kind of. Uh, I think jouissance is maybe the best word that we've got for it. It doesn't translate super well into into just one term in English, but like. I, I, I think that's that's precisely part of the uh part of the appeal. I mean, uh, we've talked about that in the context of, of slasher films. You know, why why were the slasher films so popular in popular in their kind of golden age with with uh with the demographic that was getting sliced and murdered on screen? It would, yeah, it would... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it is totally true. Yeah, it's because there's an element of um you know identification but also you know this is a whole bunch of stuff going on there you know there's a whole bunch of kind of um uh you know uh corporeal uh and empath empath empathy and autonomic sort of responses going on there like william castle you know and the tingler and things like he wanted to make it physical you mm. know and uh you know graze is great on it he's you know you know like his 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 take for poetry was does it does the hack, do the hackles rise on the back of your your neck and things like that so physical things do happen when you you know you experience that in a film or writing or whatever you know so so you know there is a physical response there definitely definitely this 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 all this all connects really well right the, like this this is one of the things about the book that i really enjoyed is that like on on like a surface level there's all this different content and and works spanning so many years but but like the the through lines for everything connect so well right like just like this conversation right there's there's this physicality to something that is simultaneously schlock movie garbage uh high-end academic criticism and it still ties in with like 400 years of cultural history yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, and I think uh, I think it's very important to to you know stick with the images and see how they re- uh, reverberate. You know, that I started off like 2004 writing about Lavenham and Manson and pigs and things like that, and uh, you know, there's this whole kind of section where I write about the um, the the buildings in in Kersey where they filmed. Um, uh, which find a general they were there they used to be pink and they and the reason why they're pink is that they were mixed with pig's blood so so mm-hmm. just those simple trains you know following that and then like stuff that later happens when i go up to bolskin and see crowley's house 
and do recordings in there uh, in the graveyard and then the house burns down three weeks later and then find all this kind of thing with the you know there's a it was used for this pig rearing sausage scam that i'd previously like investigated and it turns out so i look at all this kind of stuff and then the manson kind of overlay on you know things like uh houses on the borderland that has all these demonic pigs so i kind of there's some very very key kind of i I like to think of them as psychopomps you know they're animal images that sort of follow the book all the way through and i've been you know keen to keep those in there you know and and keep these 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 psychopomps dog black dogs and things like that that go throughout one chapter about war and and things like that so i'm very keen on like looking at these animal images that just don't go away and they keep on telling you you're on the right thread and they're they're often use signs that's very shamanic sort of approach to it but you know it's i think it's i think it works well in the in the context of the story and 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 over the chapters they just keep on coming back and you think right they're trying to tell me something they're communing here um so i've kept yeah kept that and i think that's that's a good way of keeping things looping in a big way you know yeah yeah i i i i found the the stuff on animals really interesting but um i wanted to kind of share another quote from the book as a kind of another jumping off point uh and in one chapter you say time machines are everywhere but as vincent price warns ominously before pursuing the vicar john lowe's they may not be what they seem um and one of the things i i really love about the book is the way in which you're kind of constructing this kind of gothic approach to history as a, a very explicit counter narrative it seems to the what we might call the kind of delibidonized official conception of of what of what of what english history kind of is um do you mind kind of maybe talking a little bit about that yeah yeah so um again it, it it's it's by just looking at things and, and what works and what doesn't. Um, and the particular thing about the time machines is uh, um, their ways, you know, I see them as, as, again, signposts on the landscape where you've got like psychopomps. These are kind of rotting signs or half-remembered signs or dissolving signs that feel as though they could have materialised for an older time and still hang around and that's what i'm very interested in the particular one you're talking about there is um is in mistly where um matthew hopkins which final general you know he held his his trials really and uh and i was visiting there one day and uh there's a, a hotel called the thorn hotel that he does all he did all his um kind of um you know summary courts and you know so you try these places so deeply deeply powerful events happen there and it's now like a a really chintzy like restaurant and outside on the wall there's a kind of laminated plaque that tells you the story and it does nothing to make you time travel there it does nothing to to instill the fear it's a laminated plaque of you know literal history of of these these huge events but you walk down the road, and uh, at the at the at the at the crossroads, there's this kind of old towers that look kind of quite baroque, and they're pretty cool. And there's this kind of like a tomb that's got this verdigris door, and it looks like kind of like a 
a baroque time machine so that's pretty cool but the, the really point thing is this is this this road sign that says um lawford manningtree and Mistley in three different directions but it's not a modern sign it's like a kind of oldie worldy sign i think wow that says far more than the laminated plaque telling exactly what happened it's a hint it's a clue it's a it's, it's a feeling you know so that's exactly what i mean by these time machines and it's trying to spot those that's really important and then suddenly you access the other realm that that doug pitt that i was talking about at kersey and these are these are experiences that you don't get by reading history or trying to write history it's by it's by just walking around with a kind of i guess like a kind of you know a sense of wanting some kind of psychedelic experience really and it's also to do with having watched the film you know and again it goes back goes back to kind of childhood experience of play you'd watch doctor who and then you go out and play it and i'm very you know that that is quite feels like quite a ritualistic magical thing that you that i think you we should hear it even well, you don't have to but i like to feel that in life as i grow older you know i like to go to watch a film and then feel as though you go down you go for a drink afterwards and and you see someone in the bar who you know reminds you of the film and you might go and see a, a, a like a david lynch film and then suddenly you're in a bar and there's a little dwarf there or something you know what i mean and <laughs> burroughs was very good about that he he it was very much his cut up uh, I remember him in one particular interview saying, oh, I'm reading The Quiet American, looking at the corner, there's a quiet American guy in the corner. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 you know, this whole idea of time machines is, it, it are like, uh, Burroughs calls it ports of entry. And I'm very much the same thing. I'm looking for these ports of entry into this kind of psychedelicized history, horror, you know, yeah. kind of occult history. And it and it's not just on on the kind of like on that kind of personal level, but it seems like in places, and I'm thinking particularly what, when you're writing about Churchill, you're kind of tapping into this as a as a kind of uh, a corrective to, in the context of Brexit, in the context of COVID, there's this been there's been this kind of really tedious reemergence of a kind of uh, what what the philosopher Tom Wyman would call cupcake fascism. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah, yeah. you know you know like uh 50s dresses and those old keep calm and carry on posters and the constant evocations of the blitz spirit and uh all yeah. in the context of like a public health emergency which is which is really kind of strange and again has this sort of like delibidonizing effect everything becomes um you know frantically static you know, yeah. we're, we're, all, we're all constantly on edge, but nothing has ever really kind of changed or altered. So I, I found the kind of alternate history that you were putting forward, uh, especially stuff around Churchill, really interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that's Churchill is the caretaker of Camelot was a great phrase, which I really liked. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, that was like completely organic and occult, the whole kind of stuff that happened with with. The, the these explorations you know i could have easily done a book that was like all these films but as i said like what i was doing was following these kind of imaginal clues you know in a way uh and that's what's defined the narrative so the whole i had no desire to write about churchill at the beginning and and you know in a way he's quite a ludicrous to person to to to, to look up from an occult point of view but <laughs> it happens you know and and um and i'm you know that's i think you know despite the fact that it makes it very odd and very idiosyncratic 
it isn't it isn't again even in terms of counterculture the project you know um wasn't meant to tick every single box in in terms of what i should be looking at and what i shouldn't be looking at uh, and making it a kind of you know a, a you know like a, a a compendium really of weirdness it's 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 a narrative of weirdness really um but the yeah you know the churchill thing was is interesting and um again you know there's there's a whole kind of layer of psychopomps but what you was what you were saying about the kind of the cupcake fascism again like it's it, it's seeing the clues into like these these weird frightening realms i went to this place imba last year and imba's um was uh sequestered by the american army in 1944 i think maybe earlier for like d-day invasions of normandy because mm. it looked like normandy and it was never given back you know and it's so it's now a, like a kind of haunted village and i went there on an open day and there were just there were three buildings that seemed to tell like a, a frightening plausible future for england there were there were this place called the urban warfare units and there were these kind of very bog standard in england we have like wimpy houses there or barrett homes they're just very very bland quickly put up and there was there were there were soldiers there like using it when we were there like training i thought oh this could you know this is like they're training for like you know you know clash a skirmish with the ira or or with barter mine off or something like that mm. and then i went to the imba court and it was like kind of it was like brides had revisited it was like this really posh beautifully olive green house with these massive kind of like sandbank bags outside i thought whoa that looks like that looks like sort of place that like an emergency government would hang out you know during a civil war and you know having like a sort of tin pot fascist junta there and then we went up to the because it was the open days the only time the village is open and the church was full and people were out in the you know having cups of tea in the graveyard and stuff like that and they had these massive industrial urns in, in the church and you know i suddenly realized this is a refugee camp so this whole yeah. place felt like it was like some hint of a possible future britain where there'd been a civil war you know with their armies like marching down like barrett homes where there was this kind of government stronghold and then where all these weird bit like refugees from a civil war and it's that again it's like these time machines but that's going to the future possible future so not just the not just historical but you know it's it's kind of seeing these narratives there in 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 in, in the landscape and quite you know you know horrible things it felt like oh god this is like going to be like sarajevo if it happens or you know like serbia or something like that you know and you you talked also about uh Tynum as well um, yes yeah another place that i've the one of the places you mentioned that i've been to um which is this kind of just deeply haunted space um and you know it was it was requisitioned by churchill's cabinet uh, and it's so tied up in um, these kind of discourses of uh, World War Two, obviously, and that kind of meta narrative of what World War Two means for Britishness now, and the fact that it's still surrounded by land which is owned by the army. Um, so I've tr I tried to visit Tyne multiple times, and a couple of times you can't, I couldn't go because there were maneuvers um, happening, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, there were maneuvers happening. There were tanks on the yeah. hills and it's i like, know it's, it's insane so, isn't it it's so it's such a weird space to visit 
Yeah, yeah, it's the, the, they're kind of they, they're, they're like real, aren't they? And, and and you can see history unfolding there. I think that's really interesting, where you can actually see history unfolding. So you still got like you got the you got recent history, but you still got like people on active service in there. And I, I like watching that unfolds is even is kind of more frightening than certainly visiting um, like witchfinder locations and things like that. You know, I think you know. Uh, um, you know, most horror film, most war films are horror films. You know, you know, I think to a certain degree. You know, and I'm quite interested in in, in that. You know, in a sense, um, but you know how we can, you know, how easy we can step into horror film. But you got to think back. You know, um, which final general happened in the Civil War? You know, so you know, so th- there's this overlay again of, I think this is another interest in particularly in, in films like Witchfinder General in the current climate is the paranoia and the grasping on your enemy, you know, like and settling scores and, and using witchcraft and things like that to settle scores and stuff like that. Uh, and the plain important thing to remember with um, uh, Michael Reeves, who directed is his hero was Don Siegel. So everybody talks about it being a, a Western revenge film. It's ba- basically it's invasion of the body snatchers to a certain degree, you know, snitching on your neighbours and stuff like that. So I think it's more like invasion of the body snatchers in a weird way, you know, which is a classic kind of political sci-fi horror. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that, I think that actually makes a, a lot of sense as a good reading. Um, what, one of the things that that's kind of been like like rattling around my head during this conversation is like this issue of history unfolding and time machines and, and the, you know, geography. And, and I, you know, it brings to mind a memory I had of getting off the train station at York and you, you cross the road outside of the train station. And the first thing you see is, is this uh, stumpy little plaque for a mass cholera grave that, that uh, was, was completed in the mid 1800s, I think. Wow. Wow. And like, and like, I, I just remember being so struck by like, I am, I am not, 200 years in the future of this thing yeah yeah you know there are there this is so close to me and all the memory of of the people in this and that that are buried in this pit and and the horrible medical tragedy and and the failing of society to respond to the moment it's just this stump of a sign and it's just like especially now (laughs) yeah a few years years later with coronavirus like looking back on that i'm like uh, there, there we go. There, there's, there's the threat of a future just hanging as a, as this like, you know, like dusty little sign with some like garbage that was blowing beneath it, and it's just like there's something deeply haunting about the fact that the the, the present and the future are just kind of like in flux over the present moment. Yeah, well, definitely. You know, I've I, I, I've been walking around London quite a lot this summer, really doing some investigating film locations and. Uh, um, uh, you know, I've been along the Thames where the whole kind of cholera epidemic, you know, uh, and you know, the Thames is just basically a running sewer. But one particularly kind of weird scene, a uh, weird sort of experience of kind of seeing like like a horror film in the future. I was I was in uh, I, I was having a walk to where they filmed um, Peeping Tom, which is in yeah. uh, just off Tottenham Court Road, and I was just and it was completely empty and completely derelict, uh, oh, not derelict, completely abandoned, apart from. Deliveroo drivers, there were hundreds of Deliveroo drivers, like just sitting there waiting. Uh, so I, I, I did my film location bit, and then just walked up towards Warren Street, and I saw this this Deliveroo driver. He was like driving up there, and he was just taken out by uh, 
someone in a black BMW or kind of smoke screen. I thought, Jesus. this is Death Race 2000. You know, like people are so <laughs> yeah. bored. They've got nothing to do but like yeah. run over delivery drivers. And like suddenly I was like in a horror film from the future. And it's just like, it was like, wow, like, yeah, yeah like that a, is going to be like the a, new sport. It's like a J.D. Ballard uh, yeah. scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or Death Race 2000, you know, something like that. It's like, it was just the kind of sheer irony of the, the only two vehicles on the road were delivery drivers and this black BMW with smoke screen that took out this. I shouldn't lie. He was, he was okay, you know, delivery driver. But I just thought this is like, yeah, and the streets were completely empty, you know. So it was kind of completely like, you know, as you say, Ballard or Death Ra- Yeah, Ballard, you know, King, uh, you know, that that book where people just go and like you know for sport go and beat up poor people or something like that and i think yeah it's kind of uh kind of the way it is really you know yeah because there's, there's a there's, there's a really there's a real grim surreality to this in a way like like just another another thing that's jumped into my mind is i did the lancaster castle tour um like I think I went twice on that on two different occasions. I had two two separate people take me on that tour, right. <laughs> but like there's, there's there's a part of it where they like they they lock you in a, a period cell, you know, like like the the where the witches were held during the witch trials. And wow, stuff. wow. And like they like it's just like I, I I'm I'm sitting there and like it's just it's just a bunch of tourists, you, you know, in, in the cell. And I'm just, I'm just thinking like people people were in here because they were sentenced to death. You know, yeah, during yeah. during a, a miscarriage of justice in, in one of the cruelest moments of, of history that's not as far as we like to wish it was. And and here I am in the future and I can I can buy like a, a T-shirt that says I survived the Lancaster witch trials or something and like hang out in this cell for fun. And it's just like how how far into our future do we go before there are equally grim and and completely nonsensical depictions of our lived reality. Yeah, no, I think that I think I think that stuff does happen. I quite like those reenactment so I, I did I went to one <laughs> at Kentwell and it was like a World War Two reenactment. Um and Kentwell Halls where they filmed like the hanging scene and the ducking scenes in in which find a general. So <laughs> It, uh, but I went to a reenactment day there that was kind of again it was like these all these kind of different kind of you know um, layers of reality and things like that and I, yeah they're quite you know it's it's spotting those moments spotting the irony in the present isn't it and like the 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 the, the, the you know the ability to project into stuff and a, a good one with the, the kind of current plays I went up to. Um, Brideshead, uh, where they filmed Brideshead Revisited in uh, near York, actually in Castle Howard, and they had this time capsule there that was planted by the BBC and not to be open till like thirty eight ninety three or something insane like that, and uh, and apparently it contained the original reels of Brideshead Revisited and, and kind of I was writing about. Um, kind of Eton privilege and uh, aristocratic privilege for a piece called Summer of Blood for a sort of. Uh, homage to the summer of love and i kind of said oh this was in 2017 i'd like to fantasize what the contents are now i said it would like show like footage of a zombie aristocracy brought back from the grave and like uh, (laughs) yeah and and seeking revenge on like the nhs system by bringing a medieval plague back and, and making everybody live in austerity and that's like 2020 you know so you know that was just a kind of like a I sometimes think you can glimpse prophecies by looking at stuff in an ironic, absurd way. And suddenly I read that last week and I thought, bloody hell, yeah, I'd, I'd completely forgotten it. It, it was actually, you know, you know, 
you know as much about the pandemic as it is but sometimes you need yeah. that level of kind of grotesque absurdity you know like um you know one of the things i looked at was you know the inspiration for daphne du maurier's the birds you know she just saw a tractor driver on the fields in in cornwall and he was these he's you know he's playing the fields and these these massive seagulls were just like harrying him and, and pecking away and, and then she got the whole she saw like this great big gothic apocalyptic horror from that and i love that again it's a bit like a time machine but it's bit like the you know just watching for that the seed of some like bigger idea or like fiction on the place this, this is something that like i i find just so so compelling right because like um there, there are so many like historical reenactment things you can see both both in england and in the united states where you can see like oh like come, come to this yieldy village and see how people lived in in pioneer days and stuff like that and i just like it, it is so unnerving to me to know that 200 years from now, I my my ghost is going to have to watch as as some jerks <laughs> yeah, yeah, attend the, yeah. see see how these schlubs lived before we before we created a decently reasonable society. Also, I think it's like the you know my whole thing about the British cinema and, and kind of like doing ritual and stuff like that is the ghost you know demons don't know whether you're just it's a film set or it's a genuine altar you can evoke mm-hmm. them accidentally so that you know they might reawaken you do you know what yeah. i mean like, yeah <laughs> yeah and there, there's, I, I, I i completely agree i think there's there, there's a real power to this too right because like uh, half of the like like the, the the tower of london tourist trap stuff right like this is saccharine uh, uh popcorn enjoyment for the masses you know but like it can still get you. It could still hook into your brain and like, like pull you into something more meaningful and perhaps even darker. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And you got to imagine that like Tower of London just have like heads on poles there, didn't they? You know, that's like, right. You know, it's been rebranded, isn't it? It's like, it's, it's, that in itself is odd, isn't it? You know, it's, uh, um, you know, it's the way we, uh, there's still the horror there and we kind of rebrand it, you know, or, you know, you make it into a tea towel and things like that. Again, it goes back to what I was saying. You cannot erase it. You just create a level of weird absurdity or irony or repression, you know, through yeah. whatever, through, through building on it. And I think that it's, it's always been such a big tell to me that it's never like, uh, uh, come come visit this historical reenactment for this couple that got married and had a very happy life. It's always yeah, yeah. H- historical reenactments for like uh, uh, this this guy summoned a demon and he killed his neighbor and then the town set him on fire and now there's a monument to that, but not <laughs> yeah. not to not to anything happy ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Again, yeah. Well, why is that? Why is that? Why you know? We, you know? Do we? Uh, you know, why do we want that? You know, again, it goes back to horror films. And I think, mm-hmm. I th- you know, I kind of try and take it further and say, actually, it's not just horror films. We want this frightening experience, you know, escape rooms and stuff like that are part of this, this packaging of fear uh, and trying to make it, you know, 4D, if you like, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you have to be careful, you know, you drive yourself, you know, you can drive yourself crazy and stuff like that, you know, by... By, by trying to act, you know, trying to blur these realities, you know, it's like, you know, people like Artau did and stuff like that. But nevertheless, I think it, you know, it, it, you know, it's not about special effects. It's about, you know, the, the kind of um, 
the psychedelic experience, if you like, of horror, really, you know. It's something it's something that uh William Peter Blatty said about the exorcist and like he he was he was a very uh religious person um so he thought of it in religious terms but he said when you sat there watching the film you're having an experience and it might be it might be a good experience or a bad experience but you are kind of like uh you're changed in the moment of doing it you know that experience is is valuable and i think like the real kind of advantage of reading this book for people i think is it's going to encourage them to like look at what is presented as kind of given and 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 coherent and and sen- sensible and rational you know it, english in, english heritage love to kind of pre- 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 portray things as like well we've progressed now yeah you know, there's, yeah. there's that yeah. nice there's that n- that nice smooth linear upward progression of of history and I, I really love this idea of kind of like looking at history as just these series of kind of like slippages and like there there is a kind of horror that we desperately want to get at and it's beneath that narrative it's beneath yeah. that kind of normalized homogenized delibidonized notion of like well yes there may have been uh witch trials and but now you please go to the gift shop where, yeah. where, <laughs> yeah, where you can exactly. get your yeah. t-shirt <laughs> yeah and it's it's kind of you know uh, as i said in the preface you know the, 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 the you know i was you know influenced by this guy called bob black who's an anarchist um uh writer who's who's talking about you know how uh the difference between leisure and work at least you get paid for your innovation at work you know kind of really <laughs> cynical and then you know i kind of like uh you know i was you know definitely wanted you know as a young family to visit you know these castles and i was thinking this is this is actually boring you know listening to the history like this it's you know it definitely needs to be yeah, made libidinal you know need, needs to needs to be juiced up and stuff like that you know and, <laughs> Without a doubt, you know, and horror films are a great way to do it. You know, I did all that stuff with um, Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, you know. Um, yeah. I think it's a fantastic film. So bizarre in terms of its location. I mean, it's set in this beautiful, uh, in Castleton and when it's peak, which absolutely stunning places, some of the most beautiful places in, in Britain. And they just made this gorilla zombie film and, and just <laughs> set up in this graveyard and like, created these scenes where like people were these zombies were tearing livers out of policemen and and they did it all illegally you know they didn't get any uh permits for it and then like this this shower bank of tourists came along and saw all these kind of like hippie kind of mad spanish italian people hanging out in the dra- graveyard getting drunk making this zombie film and they just come to visit Little John's grave there, and then they reported it to the police, uh, and then it ended up in the press. But that is brilliant. That's you know that to me is like exactly what I wanted to achieve. You know, like not just make a film, but make a you know like uh, the uh, like an interruption into reality, which is what he was doing. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. There's this gorilla sort of aspect to that kind of filmmaking that I loved as well. It's very kind of rebellious. Um, and that's a perfect metaphor for, you know, how it bled into like kind of like mundane history and shocked sort of history as well. And I think it's fantastic. It's a great film as well. And a very funny, there's a great interview with him and he comes across as a, I know it's scuzzy, the film, but he came across as a, a wise, intelligent person who, you know, was quite switched on as what he was doing. 
and very subversive as well. These, you know, these, these, some of these seventies Italian horror films, Spanish Italian. Those, those are truly some fantastic films. But, I, but I think uh, so. We're coming on about an hour here, which is usually okay. where we wrap things up. So, okay. if you um, wouldn't, wouldn't mind uh, telling us the title of your book one more time, uh, letting letting us know where we can get it and where we can like find you online, where our listeners can support your work and things like that. Okay, great. Thanks for having us on. It's been uh, great fun. The book is called The English Heretic Collection: uh, Ritual History and Magic, Ritual Histories and Magical Geography. Um, it's published by Repeater Press, Repeater Books. It's available from Repeater's website um, or the online stores. I'm not quite sure in America, but there's a few places in in this country that'll be stocking it. Places like Foils. Um, my website is english-heretic.org. Um, I've redone the website. Um, uh, there's uh, some. There's a playlist of music that's complementary to each chapter that. That people can have a listen to that i think will give a good feel for my kind of aesthetic sense there's some um uh excerpts from the books book on there so that's the best way so i'm on facebook as well so and instagram english heretics so if you look it up there follow me there they're quite active excellent yeah i can't i can't wait to check out that playlist to go along with the book oh, yeah yeah excellent well uh, uh john do you have anything else no, I think that's uh, that's everything. <clears throat> Thank you so much for coming on. Um, the book, the book is is this kind. I think Ash uh, is completely right. It's a book that I'm going to go back to. It's it's this kind of deep dive that kind of draws on so many different strands. And and uh, if you if you have any interest in in kind of history or in horror movies or in in uh, culture that is is a you know, uh, occult and strange and eldritch, uh, please do check this book out. It's uh, just an incredible read. Um, but yeah, thank you so much again. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure to talk to you. All right, you take care <laughs> both in Manchester. Yeah, right? yeah, talk to you soon. Yeah. Bye. All right, bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. <laughs>